Amen. Thank you, Gloria. Frances introduced you, right? Did she? No? This is Gloria Matson. Uh, Justin thinks it's a big deal having a baby or something, so he's off in Nebraska showing his parents, and uh, Gloria is leading the band tonight. So just say thanks for Gloria. Yeah. Sounds awesome. Hey, in 1990, I had the incredible privilege of traveling to Eastern Europe as the Iron Curtain was falling. Uh, I went with Leighton Ford Ministries, and I remember that as we approached the border of Romania, um, we had to bury some books in the ground in Hungary because we knew that they could be trouble, and we had to quiet our voices, uh, not talk about Christian-type things as we got to the border because they had these high-tech listening devices. And when we got to the border, these guys stepped out with machine guns and started asking us questions. But they weren't looking for drugs. They weren't looking for weapons of mass destruction. They were looking for Bibles. And that was a little stressful because uh, some of the guys that I was traveling with had been involved with smuggling Bibles into Romania. Well, they asked us some questions, and when they found out that we didn't have any, they were disappointed. They were disappointed because the revolution had just happened, and for the first time in 45 years, they could own a Bible. Isn't that amazing? You know, the Bible is uh, the most popular and the most illegal book in the entire world. Most hated, most loved, most feared, and most despised. And it's certainly the most banned. Even in this country, most banned. And yet if you go to my house and look on the shelf in my office, you'll see like a Bhagavad Gita. Um, you'll see Zen mind, beginner's mind. See the Book of Mormon. You'll see some Shirley MacLaine stuff. And you'll even see the Koran. But nobody worries about that. Nobody's threatening to send me to jail or shoot me because of that. Why is that? What makes the Bible so different? Why was the government of Romania so threatened by the Bible? Okay, turn to your neighbor and answer that question. Okay, bear your soul. Just introduce yourself. Tell you, come up with some theories about what is it about the Bible that's so different and so dangerous, okay? Now, listen, if you think the Bible's just dumb, you can say that, okay? You don't, be, don't, don't worry about impressing anybody, all right? All right. I'm sure you answered the question by now. This little uh, sermon is the third in a series on reading your Bible, and so this is the one that we're concluding with. But I want to know uh, what you think. Why was the government of Romania so concerned about the Bible as opposed um, to other books? Why? Freedom gives, gives you freedom, has a power to it, has because uh, it's truth. You know, you have to defend... You have to defend lies. So there's all kinds of government regulations around the Koran in a lot of countries. But you don't have to defend truth the same way, right? Other ideas? Not consistent with how they're running things. Wasn't consistent with how they were running things? Yeah, it could be rather revolutionary. A lot of absolutes. That Yeah, it's hard to bump up against that. And um, other ideas? It's eternal. Okay. Yeah, the Bible uh, has been around a long time. In fact, uh, if you study ancient manuscripts, you know it's really utterly unique in the history of ancient manuscripts. Its veracity is 
is amazing. Um, it's true. It's eternal. What's that? Gives hope. Okay, maybe it's it's powerful, right? It's the word of God. Speaks of love. What's that? Satan hates it. Yeah. It claims you can't serve two masters. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to follow the dictator. I think I think all of that's right. It's it's an incredibly uh, powerful book. Spurgeon said, "The way you defend the Bible is the way you defend a lion. You just let it loose." And that's different than a lot of other books. It's powerful. Does all of these things is powerful, but not always. Because you may have one sitting at home on your shelf gathering dust that's not manifesting a whole lot of power. And so I wanted to ask the question tonight, uh, what's the key to unlocking all that stuff? Unlocking its power. Because there are a lot of books that talk about the love of God and things and, you know, and uh, give a measure of freedom. But what's the key to unlocking the Bible's power? How does it become living and effective in us because it's not always living and effective. What's the key? A few years ago, Michael Drosnan wrote a book called The Bible Code, and then he wrote another follow-up book on The Bible Code, and he said that the key to the Bible was uh, encrypted messages that could be discerned using this numbering system. And supposedly, he accurately predicted the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin and the 2004 World Series champion Red Sox, which is pretty amazing. However, uh, people used his method to also predict uh, secret messages out of the novel Moby Dick by Herman Melville. But it's not illegal um, in places like Romania, so that's probably not the key. Some people think that the key to unlocking the meaning and the power of Scripture is seminary, Bible school. In seminary, I took courses on Greek and Hebrew also exegesis and hermeneutics. That's stuff like language, genre, uh, context, historical context, theological context, textual criticism. It's all really helpful. And, and now, you know, you can go down to the Bible bookstore and get Bible software that's worth like years and years of seminary language study. It's incredible stuff. But education and scholarship are tremendously helpful. However, the Bible is largely the story of how the educated Bible scholars just didn't get it. And shepherd boys did. And carpenters did. And fishermen did. And tax collectors and prostitutes did. If education was key, the Romanian government could have just outlawed seminaries. That would have been easier than outlawing Bibles. So what's the key to unlocking its power and its meaning? Two weeks ago... We talked about how the Bible is personal gospel. It's good news addressed to you. In other words, it's a love letter. And reading a love letter in faith that that love letter is addressed to you certainly makes it meaningful and powerful. The Bible's a love letter. And last week, we talked about the fact that the Bible is a, I haven't been in my briefcase, but you remember, a stack of love letters tied together with a ribbon. 
Uh, and that uh, produces a story. And stories reveal persons, and the person is Jesus. That person is also the logos, the meaning, the plot. Jesus is the beginning and the end. He's the plot. We talked of how the plot changes the meaning of every event in our story. Remember? And when it does, it produces a communion of stories, which is also a communion of persons. So when we read the Bible with faith in the plot, we lose ourselves in the story and then find ourselves in the story, for the story has found itself, its place in us, and we become the story. Last week we didn't have time to look at the text that I was shooting for, so I'd like to read it this week and then take a look at how the key unlocks its power and meaning and makes itself our, our story. I began last week's sermon, if you remember, so we can catch up, uh, with a story about a little boy who lost his family and his home in the Luftwaffe bombings of World War II, and how Leslie Weatherhead found him one morning sitting on a pile of uh, rubble, and, and he said, son, who are you? And he looked up with his tear-stained cheeks, and he said, I ain't nobody, nothing. He'd lost his story. Well, the two men in our Bible passage uh, feel like nobody, nothing. In fact, they just watched their story, their hopes and dreams, utterly destroyed on a Roman cross. But in a, in a few paragraphs, they go from being nobody, nothing, unable to discern Scripture, to somebody, something that is Scripture. This is Luke 24, 13 through 35. This is the, like the coolest story, okay? That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him, as if their blindness had a purpose. That ought to give you hope. <laughs> and he said to them, what is this conversation? What are these logoi, actually, that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there and in these days? And he said to them, Jesus said to them, what things? Do you really think that Jesus does not know? He asked them questions because maybe they don't know. Perhaps he wakes dead men slowly so they don't die from shock. What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yeah, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our group company, they amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, 
O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, now that's the Pentateuch, so Genesis, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, he exegeted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus himself is the key. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going to go further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And here's a really important question. Where'd he go? Because he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Next verse. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us out on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And so Jesus himself is the key that unlocks Scripture. The plot is the key to a story. But this plot is also alive. You know, the key to unlocking Susan's love letters in college really wasn't the concept of love letters or understanding that it was a story or knowing the language, the context, and genre or the plot. The key to understanding Susan's love letters was Susan. She wasn't just a concept. She was a living reality, a person in my life. So for me, the Word had become flesh. And Lo is seated in the first pew. <laughs> the Word became flesh for us 2,000 years ago in Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus of Nazareth appeared to them on the road that day. And now you may be saying, that's really great that Jesus appeared to him on the road that day, but where is he this day? Well, he said, Lo, I'm with you always. And he gave us his spirit. His spirit. And you may say, great, but where's his body? Well, it's a good question. Where's his body? Well, in this passage, Jesus himself applied the word to his disciples. Or maybe I should say that Jesus applied his disciples to himself, the word. I, what I want to do is look at how it happens, and you'll be proud of me because I actually have points. I have 10 points, okay? <laughs> um, first... How his story became your story, and your story becomes his story, and Jesus applies you to himself. Number one, it happened while they were walking. In other words, it's a process. It doesn't happen in a school or at a church meeting. Um, don't leave Scripture in school or a church meeting or on your nightstand, but take it walking. That's how it works. You know, if you never study, never memorize, never read in the first place, you can't take it walking at all. So I, I hope you set some time aside to study it, read it, 
Memorize it so that you can take it walking. A pupil asked his rabbi the meaning of Deuteronomy 6. It says, And these words which I command thee this day shall be upon thy heart. Why is it said, this student asked, this rabbi, uh, that Scripture says that we are to place the word on our hearts. Shouldn't it say that we are to place the word in our hearts? And the great rabbi said, It is not within human power to place the word within the heart. And so we must place it on the surface of the heart. So when our heart breaks, it will fall in. The hearts of these two disciples were broken. And Jesus himself, the living word, the great farmer, showed up and dropped the seed, the word of God, into the most fertile soil. The most fertile soil is a broken heart. Scripture says we are God's field. So number two, it often happens in the place of disappointment where your dreams die, where you lose your life. The Scriptures have never meant as much to me Honestly, yes, they have the last two years. When my heart was broken and my dreams died. And now think about these two. They said, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. You see, they had hoped that Jesus would establish the nation state of Israel and drive out the Romans. They had a very worldly hope, just like most of the nation state of Israel today. But now they just washed as all their dreams and their hopes were nailed to a Roman tree. I mean, they had hoped for a cabinet post in Jesus' new government, you know? They thought this was it. They'd be somebody something, but now they're nobody nothing. Well, you and I know that their dreams were not too large. The problem is that their dreams were too small. If you're a follower of Jesus and your dreams die, do you understand it's not because your dreams are too big? They're too small. Do you get that? If your dreams die, it's not because they were too great. They were too little. You have to lose your life in order to find it, and the one you find is better than the one you lost. You have to lose your little dreams in order to receive his dreams. He doesn't only redeem the little nation state of Israel. He redeems the entire creation from the inside out for all eternity. That's big. Yet the seed begins to grow in the soil of a broken heart. And he will break it. Jeremiah 23. Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Yeah. And we have a stone heart. And Jesus, the living word, will crack it open and plant himself the eternal seed. And so number three, it often happens through confusion and questions. Remember, Jesus is the word, the God-man that wrestles uh, Jacob and turns him into Israel. Jesus will ask uh, questions, and Jesus will feed us questions. He'll wrestle with us, and you'll wrestle with him because he's the truth, and you're not. I met with a friend this week who sometimes attends our church, and I'm looking around to see if he's here. Maybe he is. 
But he said to me, Peter, I'm an agnostic atheist. He said, I used to know all the answers. In fact, I spent two years in seminary, but now I've given up. I've given up faith. In seminary and at church, they wouldn't tolerate my questions, he said. They kept telling me that I just had to have faith. But I desire the truth. The irony is that my friend may have more faith in Jesus than most any of the students at that seminary. You know why? Because Jesus is the truth. And to seek the truth, you must have faith in the truth, even if you don't yet know that the truth is a person and his name is Jesus. If people say, don't ask questions, just have faith, they probably have very little faith in the truth. Who is Jesus? Jesus said, seek and you will find. To seek is to question. So I suspect that Jesus will make you ask questions in the place where your old dreams died and even to make the old dreams die in order that you might seek him instead. I suspect that Jesus is feeding those questions to my agnostic friend. (laughs) Just like he was feeding questions to these two dudes on the road. He says, what are you guys talking about, wrestling about, and then tell me about these things? They, they tell him about uh, the woman at the tomb, and they tell him about the vision of angels. So that's number four. Pay attention to strange women and visions, okay? <laughs> Seriously, because Jesus will ask you uh, about that stuff. And then, get this, then the guys go on to tell Jesus how some of the men conducted empirical research and found the tomb to be empty. So number five, pay attention to scientific evidence, that is, evidence in this physical world. And number six, pay attention to heartburn. (laughs) Out on the road. Evidence in your heart. If God is a person and he made you for him... Perhaps this is the very best evidence for the validity of his word, that it finds a place in you, that you desire him, that you hope for him, that you long for truth and light and love, that you hope. They said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us out on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Pay attention to heartburn out on the road and in the scriptures. You know, out on the road, sometimes you'll see a sunset or you hear a song or your kids will do something your heart will jump with hope and joy. Maybe you're up late and you just can't sleep and old movies are on, E.T. is on. And you know, E.T., he descends into this world from another world and in him is life. He touches like little plants and they they come to life. And the adults, they can't understand E.T. They want to own E.T. so they dissect E.T. in order to get his power. But the children, the children know E.T. and they love E.T. and so they enter his world. They enter his kingdom. Well, E.T., he dies, and and then he he lives, and before he ascends back up uh, to the heavens, I guess, where he belongs, and his little light heart is burning, you know, he takes his finger and he touches Elliot on the forehead, and he says, Elliot, I'll be right here. And you start weeping. Pay attention to that. Because that's not just hormones. 
That's the gospel. <laughs> Pay attention to your heart burning with faith, hope, and love out on the road. He's the king of the road. He made it. Pay attention to your heart burning and pay attention to your heart burning when, when you read Scripture. And, and, and why don't we? Well, isn't it because we've been disappointed, we've hoped and been disappointed, and so we're afraid to hope again? Well, if you're hoping in Jesus, God's Word, let me tell you, it will not return void. Hope will not disappoint us, says Scripture. So number seven, don't be slow of heart. Jesus said, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You know, Satan teaches us to be slow of heart, especially when it's 99. (laughs) But he teaches us to be slow of heart, even hard of heart. So we'll be controlled by this world and limited in our ability to love. But love hopes all things, bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. That's what Scripture says. Sometimes, you know, I get scared that I've overestimated the love of God. And I know other people do too. Is that possible? That you'll get to heaven and God will say something like, well, I know Peter said that I was super-duper loving, but I'm really only kind of loving. Sorry to disappoint you. I don't think so. For God is love. The only way we can judge love is with Him. He is love. The prophet says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. I didn't know if I should mention this, but I felt like Jesus was whispering in my heart, don't be slow of heart, Peter. The prophet says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Isaiah says, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. All flesh shall come and worship before him. Jeremiah tells us, God will not be angry forever, and the valley of the dead bodies... I think that's Gehenna, will be holy inside the new Jerusalem. Ezekiel tells us the Son of Man uh, prophesies of the dry bones and they live, and that Sodom will be restored to her former glory. And Zephaniah tells us all the people will call on the name of the Lord. And in the Psalms, David writes, all the ends of the earth shall turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation shall bow before him. All who go down to the dust. That's the one Jesus even quotes on the cross. Peter preaches in Acts 30, 21 that all the prophets prophesied a time when God would restore all things. And then the greatest prophet of all, Jesus himself, from the throne in Revelation 22, 5, he says, write this down. Behold, I make all things new. When I read those prophecies, my heart just burns with hope. Hope that Jesus died for all. Hope that Jesus paid for all. Hope that Jesus will redeem all. Hope that he makes all things new. I lie out under the stars and I go, oh, do it, do it, do it. I hope you do it. My heart burns with hope that Hades hell is not the last word. My Jesus is the last word for he's the end. I hope it, I hope it, I hope it. And the religious establishment says, you can't hope it. Not unless you confess that hope 
is impossible. Impossible for God. Then you can hope it. That's crazy. And Jesus stands next to us out on the road and he whispers in our ears, don't be slow of heart. Don't be slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. A slow heart is a dull heart, an ungraced and ungracious heart. All that the prophets have spoken. I've studied this a lot. I think all means all. And so make no mistake, it really does mean all, and all that the prophets are spoken mean that there is a lake of fire. And Sodom was destroyed with that fire, and there's a realm of the dead, there is, and time as we know it will come to an end, and the earth will be consumed with fire. And if that's a contradiction for you, here's the good news. Jesus didn't ask you to explain all that the prophets have spoken. He asked you to believe all that the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken, all the promises of God find their yes, their fulfillment in him. One person, one man named Jesus, crucified and risen from the dead. So Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, guys, and enter his glory? Death, yeah, death, then resurrection. Suffering, yeah, suffering, then glory the plot. So number eight, don't be afraid to go to the frightening places, out on the road and in Scripture. You know, on the road, Jesus' questions took these guys right back to the place of their greatest fear, Golgotha, the hill of the skull. There they had watched as the Messiah. I mean, get this. I just think we grow numb to it. But there they had watched as the Messiah, the Son of God, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They watched as hell swallowed the light of the world. All the horror movies ever made, all the nightmares ever dreamt, are but a faint echo of what Jesus endured. And they watched that day. But the very place of the greatest suffering was about to be revealed as the very place of the greatest glory, for this is the plan for the fullness of time, writes Paul, to unite all things in him, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, that's the plot. But you can't get to Easter unless you're willing to go over the hill of the skull. So don't be afraid to go to the most frightening places on your road, in your life with the Word of God, for that's where you're bound to see Christ's glory. I, I really mean it. Of course, the most frightening place on anyone's road, I think, is their own shame, their own guilt, their own sin. Don't be afraid to go there with the gospel. For you see, God's glory is grace. 
And where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And a Savior is glorified where we most need saving. So walk into the frightening places on your road with Scripture and walk into the frightening places in Scripture. Why? Because you know the plot. He's good. You know, many of the ancient Jews avoided prophecies like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Zechariah 12, prophecies of the Messiah's suffering, yet it was those very prophecies that revealed God's greatest glory, his heart, and how he makes all things new. And I should tell you this. The places that have most terrified me in Scripture are also the places that have just blown my mind with the glory of God. You know, I used to be scared to death to read most of the Old Testament. I was petrified of Genesis chapters 1 through 3. I was terrified of the revelation in that lake of fire. And I really hated the things that Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew about a Gehenna and the eternal flame. But now those places are my favorite places. For it's there I see the glory of God that on a cross and descended into hell, love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things, hopes all things. That's what Scripture says. So you see, Jesus is everywhere in Scripture. And he's everywhere on the road. So let him show you his glory. And don't be slow of heart to believe. So that's number nine. Let Jesus show you Jesus everywhere. He's the living word. Let him show you himself in the written word. Ask him. In verse 27, Jesus shows them things concerning himself in all of Scripture. You know, all the letters of Susan, all those different motions and everything, they came together in one face, in one body, saying, Peter, I love you. And all those letters and concepts in Scripture, like anger and wrath and compassion and mercy, all those opposite and seemingly contradictory concepts, they all come together in one battered face, crying from the cross, Father, forgive them. Scripture says we've seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus is still showing us his glory. He's the plot. He's the beginning and the end. Invite him in. Why? So he would be your beginning and your end. And that's number 10. They invite him in to abide with them, commune with them. And then his story becomes their story. Right? And their story becomes his story. You see, it really makes a difference when we know the plot. For when we don't, we walk into nowhere nothing. And yet when we do, we are somewhere something, and all things work together for the good, for the plot. So when you're walking down the difficult road, shrouded in darkness, disappointment, and fear, when you think that your story is over and death is the end, ask yourself, Is this how his story ends? Because his story is your story. Jesus is the end. And that really changes everything. That night I reached two conclusions. The first was that a dangerous path is made much worse by darkness. 
The second was that I was hopelessly and irrevocably lost. These woods would become my graveyard. As difficult as it was to reach Spectre, I was fated to get there eventually. After all, no man can avoid reaching the end of his life. And then I realized, this wasn't the end of my life. This isn't how I died. ever studied that movie, <laughs> you realize that what Edward remembers is his baptism. Baptism is dying with Christ and rising with Christ. He remembers the plot, and he steps back onto the way. Jesus is the plot, and Jesus is the way, and Jesus is your end, and, and this isn't a trick. When you have faith in the plot, your story becomes his story, and his story is history. Did you notice that we're reading about these two confused, no-name disciples 2,000 years later? And did you notice that we're reading about these two disciples in the Word of God, God's story, his story? And did you notice that the disciples, um, they changed the world? And this is how it happened. They invited Jesus in to abide with them, commune with them, and then somehow the guest becomes the host. Really, the host. He took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to them. He gave himself to them. And when he gave it to them, suddenly they saw not just broken bread, but broken body. And when they saw the broken body, they forgot about themselves, and they saw him, and then he vanished. Where'd he go? Where's his body? Well, his spirit is in them, right? And they are his body. They run back to Jerusalem, okay? They run back to Jerusalem. Nobody told them they had to do this. They run back to Jerusalem preaching the gospel. Uh, not because they applied the word to themselves. No, the word applied themselves to him. They're the body of Christ. Created in God's image with a word. You know, it wasn't um, far from Emmaus, uh, another little town named Bethlehem, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us in perfection. Herod shook, the angels sang. It's called Christmas.
Did you know that the Word is still taking on flesh? A body? We're not perfect like Him, but we're being perfected, and He is our head. We're the body of Christ. And by the way, I found out why the Romanian government was so stressed out about Bibles. Because of that. Scripture has a way of taking on flesh. And in Romania, I met some of the flesh. Persecuted Christians. Like my friend Peter, he rolled up his sleeve and he showed me the scars on his body from the torture. But you see, they weren't really scars on his body. Why? Because it was Christ's body. He was part of the body of Christ. They were Jesus' scars. In Romania, the body of Christ, filled with his spirit, believed the gospel, forsook the fear of death, and singing hymns caused a revolution. Peter was part of it and he told me the story. The dictator was deposed on Christmas Day. And so, we've walked down the road a while, talked about the prophets, talked about Moses, and check it out, there's a table. And we remember that Jesus, the, the Word of God, He took bread and He broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so if you don't want to be nobody, nothing, stuck in nowhere, if you're ready to surrender your dreams and surrender your life for his dreams and his life, he wants you to be somebody somewhere. He wants you to be part of his story. And so he invites you to come to the table and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. The cups with the ribbons are wine. The cups without the ribbons are juice. Come to the table and ingest the plot. Why? Because it's Christmas in July. <laughs> Amen? Let's worship him. And so, Lord Jesus, the living word, would you be the air that we breathe at the sanctuary downtown? And would you make us a biblical church, your very body? In Jesus' name I ask it, amen. Well, this is the end of a three-week deal on Scripture. And it's because I hope that we would be biblical. Not so we can judge other people, not so we can learn a bunch of rules, but we can discover who he is and who we are. As a man thinketh, so is he. Just who do you thinketh you are? <laughs> Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So read your Bible to learn your story and live your story. In Jesus' name, Merry Christmas. <laughs>